everybody. How's it going? Good to see all of you here today at our church. I want to especially welcome all of you who are joining us for the very first time. Welcome to our church. Uh, we had a, we're back from Israel, had a great time. Uh, I woke up with a stiff back this morning, so I put a chair here just in case I need to sit down. And if, that's, if you see me sit down, that's why, because I can't stand anymore. Well, I wanted to begin by telling you a true story. You know, when I was a little boy, my parents uh, told um, my brother and I about the tooth fairy. They told us about the tooth fairy, and they, they told us that if we lost a tooth, that all we needed to do was put that tooth underneath the pillow, and voila, the uh, tooth fairy would come in the middle of the night, take the tooth, and replace it with some money. And when I asked what the ter- tooth fairy looked like, if they had any idea what it looked like, they said, no, we don't really know what it looked like. And I just figured it probably looked like an angel and had wings, maybe something like this. Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, it freaked me out that some creature would come in the middle of the night into my bedroom and hover over me and stick his or her hand underneath my pillow and get my tooth. It just kind of freaked me out that that would happen. Well, when I lost my first tooth, I finally, I was around five or six years old. My parents reminded me, don't forget to put your tooth underneath your pillow and the tooth fairy will come and give you some money. So I got that tooth and I wrapped it in some tissue because it was a little blood on it put it underneath my pillow and went to sleep. Well, when I woke up the next morning, first thing I did was I reached under the pillow and sure enough, the tooth was gone and there in its place was a bright, shiny new dime. And I was so excited. I went to school and I had to tell all my friends, Malabar Elementary School, told everybody that that the tooth fairy came in the middle of the night and left me a dime. And some of them uh, knew what I was talking about because some of them had already experienced it, lost the tooth, put it under the pillow, and got some money. Except they didn't get a dime. Veronica told me she got a quarter. Jose told me he got a dollar. Their tooth fairy was loaded. <laughs> so when I went home that day, I opened my mouth and I started counting all the teeth I have to see how much money I would get and how much money I would make in the next couple years. At a, at a dime a pop, I thought, well, I'm not going to get rich, but hey, 10 cents is 10 cents, and it'll all add up. Well, fast forward several decades, and I am now a dad, and I have children of my own. And when Kylie and Natalie got ready, you know, when they got to that point where they were about ready to lose their teeth, I told them, Cheryl and I told them about the tooth fairy. And we told them that when they lost their tooth, all they needed to do was put it underneath the pillow, and the next morning, the tooth fairy would leave, take the tooth and leave some money in his place. And so Kylie, I'll never forget, Kylie lost the tooth. She put it underneath the pillow and she got $5. And Natalie did the same thing. She got $5. Well, when Kylie lost her second teeth or tooth, um, she, again, she put it underneath the pillow, went to sleep, and Cheryl and I, we're, we're doing our you know family chores and washing the dishes and all those kinds of things. And finally, uh, sat down, watched some TV, and went to sleep. And we forgot about her tooth. <laughs> the next morning, Kylie woke up, and she was crying. So I rushed into her room, and I said, Hey, sweetheart, what's wrong? What's wrong? She said, The tooth fairy didn't come last night. And I thought, Oh, my goodness, we forgot. Bad tooth fairy, Cheryl. And so, uh, <laughs> so I apologized profusely to her, told her that the, I was positive the tooth fairy would come that night. The tooth fairy was probably busy watching Desperate Housewives or something like that that was on at the time. 
And so I was positive the tooth fairy would come. So I said, just be patient, you know, just, I'm sure the tooth fairy just missed you last night. We'll come tonight. Well, I told Cheryl about the fiasco, and I said, we got to make sure that the tooth fairy uh, doesn't forget Kylie's little tooth tonight. And so when she woke up the next morning, sure enough, she was happy as a lark. She was ecstatic because the tooth fairy didn't leave her $5. The tooth fairy left her $20. I think the tooth fairy felt guilty for blowing it the night before. Well, that didn't happen just once, but it happened multiple times with Kylie and Natalie where the tooth fairy forgot to show up and leave some money. In fact, on one occasion, Natalie, we, oh, the, not we, the tooth fairy left her a $5 basket and Robin's gift certificate because I think the tooth fairy didn't have any money, forgot to go to the ATM earlier that day. Well, anyways, their tooth fairy is very forgetful. It's very forgetful. Now, I'm going to come back to this story in a little bit, but I want to give you a heads up, if, especially if you're parents and you've got a little one and you're in, in the worship center with us this morning, if you've got a youngster with us, if you don't want them to know the true identity of the tooth fairy, I suggest you escort them out and take them to kids' school, right? Because I'm going to, like I said, I'm giving you a warning, getting you a heads up, and I'm going to come back to this in just a little bit. Now, for the last three weeks or so, we've been in a series here called Simply God, and we've been delving into the nature and the attributes of God. Well, today, in light of the fact that 36 of us just returned home from Israel, I wanted to tell you about what impacted us the most, and I think I can speak for all 36 of us, what had the greatest impact with you know, this trip, what the greatest impact on us, and that was the realization that God is real. I think that's what we came with. I think that was our big takeaway. We came, came back realizing that God is real. And so I've titled my message today, God is real. God is real. All right? So before we get into the message, let me open up our time in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, thank you so much. It is so good to be here at church today. Thank you for this great family that we call South Bay. And Father, thank you for an extraordinary, life-changing experience for the 36 of us who went to Israel. Thanks for, for all that we learned. Thank you for opening our eyes to what, uh, to what we saw about you. Thank you, Father, for just protecting us and keeping us safe and for our families back home as well. And today I pray that you would help me to convey the truth of who you are, that you are real. And I pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would speak to us in such a way, especially if someone is here today and they still don't think you're real. I pray you'd speak to them, speak to the depths of their hearts, that they would come to know and acknowledge that you are real, God, because you are. So, God, thank you so much for our time together. Speak to us now. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, since the beginning of time... Uh, People have struggled with whether or not God is real. I mean, for, since the beginning of time, that's been a real struggle. Does God truly exist? I think that's been the real issue. And it's a critical question. And, and my assessment of it is that there's never been a time when fewer people believe that God is real than today. Uh, just five years ago, the Pew Research Center found that the percentage of Americans who believe that God exists actually dropped from around 71 to 63%. So maybe two-thirds of the people... 
uh, come to the place where they don't believe that God exists. Now, I imagine that if the similar survey was taken today, that that percentage would be even lower. Uh, there's never been a time when, when in our nation's history when so few people believe that God exists. Uh, and in fact, there's so many of them now that surveyors, pollsters have actually come up with a name for the category of people who don't believe that God exists, and, the, and they're called nuns, not N-U-N-S, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because they have no political or not, no religious affiliation. They don't believe in God. They have none whatsoever. And according to a survey that was uh, conducted early this year by BYU, Brigham, Brigham uh, Young University, 33% of the people surveyed classified themselves as nuns. They don't have any religious affiliation. They don't believe that God exists. And that's why I think this topic, is this, this question is so critical. So how do we know that God is real? How do you know that God is real? On Friday, December the 21st, 1968, Apollo 8 lifted off from Cape Kennedy in Florida. With three astronauts on board, it was the first time that humans ever left the Earth's orbit, and they were headed for the moon. Well, three days later, Apollo 8, Christmas Eve, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, William Anders made history when they entered lunar orbit, first time humans ever orbited the Earth. And when they looked out that window, they couldn't believe what they saw. For the very first time, Anders took this photograph, which has been dubbed the most influential environmental photo ever taken. They saw the earth. It's called Earthrise. And they saw, of course, in the foreground, they saw the moon itself. And they were absolutely blown away. Borman, Lovell, and Anders were so moved by what they saw that they shared the following message with the entire world. Take a look. Listen to this. I found it on YouTube. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. That was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. They read from the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, they flew to the moon, and they saw God. They looked out their window. They saw the earth. They saw the moon, and they saw God in his beautiful creation. You see, the first way that we can know that God is real is through his creation, Psalm 19, verse 1. Take a look at that verse. You have in your Bay Watch and a sheet in there with all the verses listed there for you on the notes. You can also follow on our app or on the screen. But the first verse, Psalm 19, 1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words, this verse tells us that everything in creation points to a Creator. 
Every created thing in the universe is like a directional sign that screams, God made this. He made it all. And in this verse, the verse, in this verse, the verbs declare and proclaims are in the Hebrew present tense, which means that creation is continually, is constantly declaring the glory of God. It is not a past tense verse. It is a present tense verse. Even as I speak here today, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The Apostle Paul said something similar in Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. Take a look at it. He wrote, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All right, let me read this translation to you in a different, this passage to you in a different translation, the New Living Translation, which I think is a little easier to understand. He wrote this, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Right? In verse 19, I want you to underline this. Underline obvious to them. Paul wrote that God's qualities, God's power, God's divine nature are obvious to us and because it is obvious present and evident in everything that he has made. It is unmistakable. You can't miss it. God is evident everywhere. You see him in the skies, like in the Sombrero Galaxy. This is amazing. It was, it was named, it was called the Sombrero Galaxy because this galaxy that contains billions of stars looks like a sombrero. You see him on earth in the snow-capped mountains, the pastel deserts from sea to shining sea. You know, on the fourth day that we were in Israel, we visited a place called Masada in the Dead Sea. It was an ancient Roman fortress built by Herod the Great. We had to take an aerial tramway all the way up to the top, which I wasn't too, too thrilled about because I don't like heights. Here's a photo that was taken by Andrew Yang. Andrew's here today. This is taken by Andrew. And you can see where the, we board the, uh, there's a little building down at the very bottom where we board the the aerial tramway, and then there's the aerial tramway toward the bottom. It goes all the way up to the top, very, very high. When we got to the top, God's hand was obvious. His creation was obvious as we looked upon the Judean Judean desert, and we saw the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on the planet. And Cheryl snapped this photo as we were walking on the top of Masada and looked out. It was absolutely breathtaking to see what God had done. God is obvious in everything that he's made. He is obvious in even the littlest things that he's made, like this praying mantis that I found on the hood of my car not too long ago. God made it with a head. God made the praying mantis with a head that is shaped like a triangle, and it can turn 180 degrees with these big bulging eyes. He made it with folded hands so that it looks like it's praying. And get this, when the adult female is finished mating with the adult male, she eats him. She cannibalizes him. But that doesn't stop the male mantis from desiring the female and mating with her, which shows you how dumb males are. (laughs) God is obvious in all of his creation. He is obvious in even the most innocent of his creations, like in the face of baby Caleb, 
who was born just a few weeks ago to Matt and um, Doyan uh, Getz here, who they come, they come to our church. So write this one down. This is your first point. There is evidence of God in his creation. We see it all around us. His fingerprints are on everything. You know, last year when I was in Japan, um, my, uh, my dad's cousin, who I met for the first time, took me to see one of Japan's national treasures. It's called the Myotsuji Temple in western Japan. This is it right here. I took this photo. It was built in the year 806, which makes it 1,200 years old. I mean, it is very, very old. Inside the temple, I was taken inside the temple to, so that I could see what was in the temple, were these three wooden Buddhist, uh, or Buddhist statues, uh, including the deity that's referred to as Gozanzemyo. This is Gozanzemyo. And this was not the exact statue that was in there, but it was one like it, this particular uh, Buddhist statue, Gozanzemyo. And as you can see, if you look at the face carefully, it kind of has a frightening uh, appearance to it. Uh, as I... As I gazed at these statues inside the temple, it was a reminder to me that every human heart, since the beginning of time, every human heart has longed to believe that God exists, that God is real. In the case of the Japanese, they're longing to believe that there's something bigger and greater than, out, than, than them out there, led them to worship Buddhist statues and idols in the Shinto religion. They, they worship plants and flowers and trees and rocks and streams and lakes and mountains and fish. They have millions and millions of gods in the Shinto religion. There's this great hunger and desire to believe in something that is bigger than them. You know, one of the ruins that we visited in Israel was the ancient city of Dan, located almost at the very top of Israel, northern Israel, near the Syrian-Lebanon border. It was conquered by the Israelis uh, in 1100 B.C., and according to Judges 18, verse 30 in the Old Testament portion of the Bible, uh, the, the Jews that lived in the city of Dan worshipped idols. Take a look at Judges 18, verse 30. And it says, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. They set up these carved images which they worshipped. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. And then here's what their king did. Not only did the people worship carved idols, but their king, Jeroboam, here's what he did. First Kings chapter 12, verse 28. And it says, and so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. You see, this was not the first, this was not the first time. You remember Aaron was the one that made the, the, the calf of gold when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And this was the second time the king, Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up. To Jerusalem long enough, behold your gods. These calves are your gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And so that ancient city of Dan where we went, there was once a golden calf that the people worshipped in addition to all those carved idols. So get this, more than 1,900 years before the Japanese erected the Myotsuji Temple, the Jews worshipped calves, golden calves, and carved images there in Israel. And that's exactly what archaeologists found in their excavations of that city. They've been excavating that city for many years now. They've unearthed altars like this one here that Alyssa Finch took. It's just a pile of rocks on a little, on a little bed of stone with a, a rock wall behind it. This was a, an altar where they worshipped idols. 
they found, excavators found the container that housed the golden calf. And then they found incense holders and other artifacts. And once again, when we were in Israel, it reminded us, it was a reminder that for as long as anybody can remember, men has longed to believe that God exists. They has longed to believe that, that God is real. And so they have worshipped all kinds of idols and carved images. And it's no wonder that King Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I want you to underline that last sentence because it's an important sentence. He has set eternity in the human heart. God put eternity in your heart. In other words, God made you with this gnawing, innate sense that there's someone or something bigger than you, than, bigger than just you. And so write this one down. There is evidence of God in our hearts. There is evidence of God in our hearts. God created every man created every woman, every child with an inborn sense that he exists, that, there, that God is real, which means that whether you consider yourself religious or not, there is a spiritual component to you. There's a spiritual component to you. It's in every Japanese. It's in every Jew. It's in every, uh, it's in every Chinese. It's in every Mexican. It's in every Russian. It's in every Filipino. It's in every Iranian. It's in every Indonesian. The sense that there is something bigger than us, than us out there. Everybody has a spiritual side to them, even, even if they don't practice any religion whatsoever. Which is why philosopher Blaise Pascal said many years ago that there is a God-shaped vacuum, a hole inside of us. And the only one who can fill that, the only one who can satisfy, is, satisfy us is God himself. A God-shaped vacuum. And the point is this, there's more to life. There is more to life than just being born and going to school and getting a job and making money and getting married and raising kids and dying. There is more to life than that. There's more to life. That's not, not all there is because you were created. You were created to live forever. You know, shortly before he died, Steve Jobs, billionaire, chairman, and co-founder of Apple. Many of you have iPhones had a chat with his biographer, Walter Isaacson. And the conversation was about God. Steve Jobs actually talked about God. And here's what he told Isaacson. I want to put it up here for you. He said this, you know, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50 maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more. And I find myself believing a bit more. I kind of, maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife. That when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated, somehow it lives on. But sometimes I think it's just like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. And then Steve Jobs added this. He said, that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. I bet you didn't know that. Your iPhone doesn't have an on-off switch. Because he didn't like those things. You see... In God's economy, there's no off switch. There's only an on switch because he created you to live forever. He said eternity in your hearts. There's only an on switch. And if you want to experience eternity with God, then you've got to believe that he's real. You see, there's eternity. There really is an eternity, and everyone will live forever. Did you know that? Everyone will live forever. And you will either live in God's presence in a place called heaven, or you will live in a place called hell where God doesn't exist. And if you've never believed that God is real, then that's where you will live forever because God has set eternity in your hearts. You were designed to live forever. 
And sadly and tragically, man's quest for God has all too frequently led him down the wrong path. And billions and billions and billions of people have erroneously chosen to follow idols and false gods and even nothing instead of Almighty God. And every time I see the idols, it breaks my heart. Don't make that mistake. Acknowledge that God is real because he is. Now, let me get back to the tooth fairy story, right? As I got older, again, this is true. As I got older, I began to wonder, is the tooth fairy, is the tooth fairy real? Does the tooth fairy really exist? I mean, when you're 8 and 9 and you're 10 and you're still putting your teeth under your, your, your pillow, you kind of wonder, is this real? I mean, where is this money coming from? And so I decided, one day I decided to test the tooth fairy, a tooth fairy test. I wanted to know if the tooth fairy was real or if it was just a fairy tale. And so on that particular day, I lost another tooth. But this time I didn't tell anyone. I just kind of pulled it out myself instead of having my dad help me. I pulled it out myself, and that night before I went to sleep, I wrapped it in some tissue, and as I always did, I put it under my pillow. I tucked it under my pillow, and I went to sleep. The next morning, first thing I did, I reached under my pillow, and to my chagrin, there it was. The tooth was still there. The tooth fairy didn't come. That evening at dinner, I said to my parents, I know who the tooth fairy is. It's you. It's you. And then I told them what I did. And, I, and, and they just laughed, they laughed and laughed, and then they confessed that, yes, we are the tooth fairy. And he says, now that you know that we're the tooth fairy, you don't get any more money. <laughs> and, they, and that was it, you know, because why would I put my tooth under the pillow? <clears throat> you know, when they first told me about the tooth fairy, I believed, I believed them. Oh, Gary, put your, put your, uh, put your tooth under the pillow and you're going to get a, a dime. I believed them. When I told my daughters about the tooth fairy, they believed us, and they did exactly what we said. In the same way, when I learned what the Bible had to say about God, I believed it. I said, yeah, that, I believe that. You see, at some point, you've just got to, you either believe or you don't believe. Your parents tell you that there's a tooth fairy. You, 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 you've got you to either believe or you don't believe. You have to ex exercise faith, even though you've never seen the tooth fairy. So when... I learned about what the Bible has to say about God. I said, yeah, I believe that. I just decided to believe that. So the biggest question, well, what's the Bible? What's the Bible that it tells us about God? Well, in a nutshell, the Bible is the historical declaration of God's existence. This tells us all about God, that God exists. Now, it's divided into two major parts. As you may know, it's divided in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us the story of God and his people, the Jews, the formation of the nation of Israel. It foretells the coming of Messiah, Jesus. The New Testament, on the other hand, is all about Jesus. It's about his birth, which we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks. It's about his ministry. It's about his death on a cross for our sins. It's about his resurrection. The New Testament also tells us about the church and about the last days and how the world will end. And it's clear from reading the Bible that, that Jesus was not just a man, but it's clear from reading the Bible that Jesus was God. Not only was he man, but he was fully God. Now, more than anything else, I want you to, what I want you to know about the Bible is this, that it is the story of God, and it was written by God, flawlessly, perfectly written by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 in the Bible says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I want you to take a pen, and I want you to underline, breathed out by God. 
right? All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, to understand what this means, let me take you to an Old Testament passage, Job 32, verse 8. And here's what that says. For it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. All right? So in this verse, I want you to circle or underline breath of the Almighty. Breath of the Almighty. Now, these two phrases, breath of the Almighty and breathed out by God, are the exact same thing. They mean the exact same thing. You can actually substitute one for the other. So that, for example, if you were to substitute what it says in Job 32 with 2 Timothy 3.16, it would look like this. All Scripture is the breath of the Almighty. The Bible is the breath of the Almighty. I mean, think about that for a moment. A moment. The Bible is the breath of the Almighty. Do you realize how significant that is? If the Bible is the breath of the Almighty, what that's really saying is the words in this book, the words in this book are the very words of God. That's what it means. These are the very words of God. So if you want to hear from God, if you want to know what God has to say, if you want to know what God thinks, then you read the Bible because these are the very words of God, the breath of the Almighty. You got to read the Bible if you want to hear from God. Of course, um, you know, so, so I want you to write this one down. There is evidence of God in the Bible, right? There's evidence of God in the Bible. Now, let me clarify something about this. There's evidence of God in the Bible. The Bible doesn't actually present evidence in the Bible. The Bible is simply the declaration of God that God exists, right? It doesn't present evidence. So it begs the question, where is the evidence? Where is the evidence that God exists? Well, on November the 15th, a couple weeks ago, 36 of us from our church embarked on a journey to Israel that changed our lives forever because there we saw some of the evidence that God exists, right? And He is real. I want to show you a quick video recap of our trip that was put together by Danny Vong. Take a look at this.
It was such a very moving and, and powerful experience. As I said, it changed all of our lives. And um, I just want you to know that we're planning, we're already looking into booking a trip for 2020, probably about the same time because that's when the weather uh, is, is really the best. And so we'll probably tell you, be telling you more about this in January once we get the information. We had 36 go on this trip. We're expecting that that number could double uh, for the next trip, and we're trying to figure out how we do that because hurting or moving around 36 people uh, can be quite a challenge, and so we'll let you know about that, and I, I just want you to know that uh, the oldest person on our trip was 85 years old, and we went up and down and went into caves and all kinds of things, and uh, someone else was about 82 or 83, and they, they did great. They did fine. You, you're going to need to, we'll tell you a little bit more about that, but if you are interested in that, about the same time November and next year when the weather's the best. We'll let you know about that in January. We'd love to have you on the next trip. Now, my faith has always been two-dimensional. It's been two-dimensional in the sense that my faith has always been based on words in this book. I've just always believed the words in this book. I've believed, I've believed the stories in the Bible. I have believed the people and the places in the Bible were true. And that they were real. And then I went to Israel. And my faith took on a completely different dimension. It all of a sudden became three-dimensional or even four-dimensional. Because for the first time in my life, I saw with my own eyes some of the places mentioned in the Bible. And I came face to face, all of us did, with the evidence that God is real. One of our first stops was in Capernaum. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. It was Capernaum, which is a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. 
When we were there, when we were there, we were shown what archaeologists uncovered and believed to be Peter's home. Uh, and this is where, and this is where Jesus also lived. Now you'll see this kind of a wall on the outside of it, but it's, that's not the the home. The home is that area right behind it, and it's rather small. But it was once covered by uh, a church, and that was excavated out because every time they had the, these kind of these sacred religious places. The church would come in, the Catholic church often would come in and cover it up and, and build churches over that. Well, all that was excavated out, and then they came to realize, hey, this is Peter's home, and this is where Jesus lived, because the scriptures tell us that Jesus actually lived in Capernaum. Take a look at Matthew 4.13, and it says, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So Jesus went to live. He lived in Capernaum, and it's believed that he lived with Peter. So when this site was excavated, archaeologists found coins and oil lamps and fish hooks going back to the first century when all this went down. They also found about 125 etchings on the plaster wall in the house, one of which said, quote, Lord Jesus Christ, help your servant, unquote, and another which read, Christ have mercy, unquote. And then there were some carvings with Peter's name, in this place, which is why they were led to believe that this is Peter's home and this is where Jesus also lived with him. And the thought of it, this, this whole trip, just that part of it just gave me chicken skin, as you Hawaiians would call it. And it made me realize that Jesus is real. He's not just words in a book. That these were real places. We felt, we experienced the same thing when we were on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, there was not a dry eye on the boat as we realized that this was the, the very place that Jesus walked on water, that Peter walked on water and Jesus walked on water. A mere 80 feet, 84 feet from Peter's home was a, was a synagogue that was believed to be the place where Jesus taught. Mark 1.21 says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And this is our group sitting inside that synagogue listening to our tour, tour guide, who was, by the way, was absolutely outstanding. He, was a, he is a Jew who became a Christian. And so his depth of knowledge of history and archaeology and the scriptures was absolutely uh, amazing. But we're sitting in this synagogue, and uh, this is not the actual synagogue that Jesus taught in. The actual synagogue that Jesus taught in was below us. So what happened was the actual synagogue was very old, was, was torn down, and a new one was built right on top of it. And if you go outside of it, you can see the, the foundation of the old synagogue because the stones are all black. This is, has, has a more basalt color to it. But we were standing on the place, in the place. Where Jesus, we believe, historians and archaeologists believe where Jesus once stood. And where he opened up the Torah and the scrolls and taught the scriptures and taught about himself. It was absolutely amazing. I mentioned earlier that we visited the city of Dan in northern Israel. In 1993, an archaeological team from the Hebrew Union College excavated a one-foot stone slab from that site. It looked like this. This was the very stone they excavated and, and dug up this stone with the inscription. And you can't really read it, but it says uh, in Aramaic, House of David, King of Israel. House of David, King of Israel. Not a complete sentence, but a fragment that's on this slab. 
Uh, this was considered the discovery of the decade, if not the discovery of the century, because it was the first historical evidence ever found in Israel that King David actually existed. Now, this, it was so big that it made the front page of the New York Times in 1993, and the tablet today is housed at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. It commemorated the victory of an Aramean king over his two neighbors, the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. Now, I have always believed that David existed. I've always believed that David was real because he's written about in the Bible. My, my view of him and my faith in him has been two-dimensional. I mean, I believe that David was a young man who killed Goliath. I believe that he was the second king of Israel because the Bible tells me. I believe he was a man after God's own heart. I believe he was the man that financed the building of the first temple. He wrote many of the Psalms, like Psalm 23, which says, For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I believe that always. But then now, for the very first time, for the very first time, here was an actual stone that said that David, in fact, truly existed. And if he existed... That means that everything that, that he said in the Bible and the Bible says about him is true. And if the things that are in the Bible about him are true, it means that God is real. God is real. Another site we visited were the Qumran Caves. In 1947, some Bedouin teenagers were herding and shepherding some goats and some sheep. And we actually saw some Bedouins there in Israel at the Dead Sea. And we saw them herding some goats and some sheep. But some, in 40, 1947, they were, some teens were, teens were herding some goats and sheep, and they got a little bored, and they started messing around. They started throwing rocks at each other. And one of the rocks flew right into a cave there in the, in the uh, Judean desert, and they heard a, a shattering sound when the, when the stone, when the rock was thrown in the cave. And they wondered what it was, so they went into the cave. They crawled in the, into the cave to investigate what it was. And what happened was the rock hit a clay jar, and it shattered, and it contained an ancient scroll. They went on to look throughout that cave, and they found seven more jars, pottery jars, containing leather and papyrus scrolls. And they didn't know what it was. They couldn't even read it, so they sold it to an antiquities dealer. When word got out about their discovery, treasure hunters from all over the place came to that same area, scoured all the caves. There were many caves in that area, and they unearthed more jars that contained more scrolls. When all was said and done, more than 800 manuscripts were found in 11 different caves, many of which contained biblical texts. In fact, fragments or complete copies were found of every book in the Old Testament, every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Here's a photo of cave number four that I took from where we were standing. In cave number four, this is absolutely amazing because in cave number four, the entire Old Testament book of Isaiah was discovered. The entirety of the book of Isaiah was discovered in that cave. And here's part of the scroll Isaiah. Here's what it looks like. Part of what it looks like housed at the Israel Museum. And I was reminded of what the prophet Isaiah wrote on one of these scrolls about the Lord God himself preserved on these very scrolls. He wrote in Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew and one called to another and said, holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah spoke and wrote about the Lord God and he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's contained in those scrolls that were found in cave number four in the, in the Qumran caves in the Judean desert. And so I came to realize these aren't just words in a book. The Dead Sea Scrolls was evidence that God is real. And there's so much more I'd like to tell you about. I'd like to tell you about our visit to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, where Jesus sweat drops of blood. I'd like to tell you about the Temple Mount. Here's a photo of, the, of Cheryl and I on the Temple Mount. There on the Temple Mount where the Temple of God once stood was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., was rebuilt and then destroyed again in 70 A.D. And then it was, after it was destroyed, the Muslims came in and they built a mosque on the Temple Mount. Well, one day that will be all gone because the third temple will, will be built on the site where we're standing right there. I wish I had more time to tell you about the Mount of Olives, which is just across from the Temple Mount. Just across from the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives, and we had an opportunity to stand on the Mount of Olives. And it reminded me of Zechariah 14, which says that in the second coming, when Jesus returns to earth, his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives and will split in half from east to west. It was absolutely mind-blowing to think that all that was real. We were there. All this to say that those of us who went on this journey saw God in a way that we never had before. And it changed us because we saw that God wasn't just words in a book, but we saw that he was real. God is real. He showed up thousands of years ago. He gathered his people, chose his people, called the Jews, gave them a home called Israel. God sent his son Jesus to live and die in a place called Israel. He raised him from the dead in a place called Israel. There's no doubt in my mind that God Israel is real. Here's the thing. You don't need to go to Israel, and probably most people will never go to Israel. I never thought that I would go to Israel. Most people will probably never go to Israel, but you don't need to go to Israel to believe that God is real. You don't need to go there to believe that God is real. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You can know that God is real simply through faith in him. Just simply by believing, like you believe that the tooth fairy was real. You believe that the words in this book are real, that God is real. You can know that God is real by simply exercising your faith. So it gets down to this one final question. Do you believe? Do you believe God is real? Do you have faith that God is real? And if you want to know that God is real, just look around you. Just look around you at creation and you'll see him everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. If you want to know that God is real, just look in your heart because God set eternity in your heart. If you've ever thought, there, there must be a God, there's got to be a God, then that's what God put in your heart, that you would believe in Him and know Him. All you need to do, if you want to know God is real, all you need to do is open the Bible and read the Scriptures, and there it is right there. And you'll know who Jesus is, and you'll know what He did for you. You'll know that God is real. If you do these three things, you can't help but conclude that God is real. And if you believe that God is real, and I hope you do, if you believe that God is real, then you just can't be the same person. It's got to change you.
It's got to change the way you live. It's, it's got to change the way you think and the way you see things. If you believe that God is real, you've got you to follow him, and you've got to tell others about him, and you've got to serve him, and you've got to live like it. So what should you do? Put your faith in God because God is real. God is real. He really is. Well, let's close our time in prayer. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to ask you that one final question. Do you believe that God is real? He is. He is. And God isn't a rock. God isn't a statue. God isn't a plant. God is so big. And God is so great that in an entire lifetime we'll never be able to comprehend who he is. God also loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to Israel, to planet earth, to die on a cross for your sins because that's the only thing that keeps you away from having a relationship with Christ is it's your sins. He came to die on a cross for our sins. And because Jesus was God, he was raised from the dead. All you need to do is believe that he's real and that Jesus was real. And that heart-shaped hole in your heart will be filled to overflowing by him because nothing else can fill that heart. Nothing can satisfy the emptiness in your heart. Only he can. So why don't you say today, God, I acknowledge that you are real. I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. I believe in you. Will you say that to him? Say that to him right now. In the quietness of your heart, just say, God, I believe you're real. And you do that, your heart, that, that God-shaped vacuum in your heart will be filled by him. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you so much that you are real, that you're not a God made out of rock. You're not a God that is, has to be carved out of wood, but you are a living God. You are a real God. You're an awesome God who is alive today. God, for all of us who believe that you're real, let it change us. Let it do something in us. Help us to follow you. Help us to serve you. Help us to be people who will tell others about you. How can we sit back and keep our mouths shut if we know that you're real? So do a work in us, God, that we would proclaim the excellencies and the glory of God to whoever will listen to us, to where, wherever we go. God, Israel, thank you, Lord. We love you so much. 
And we pray these things in your name. Amen.